Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Don Winslow at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Internationally renowned thriller novelist Don Winslow is the mind behind the Godfather trilogy of our time. This according to sources as varied as the New York Times, Esquire Magazine, and writer Stephen King. Over the past three decades, Winslow has published more than 20 books in total. Early highlights include The Death and Life of Bobby Z, Basis for a 2007 film of the same name, starring Lawrence Fishburne and Paul Walker, and Savages, which was adapted for the big screen by Oliver Stone in 2012. Winslow reached still further heights with The Power of the Dog, the first of a trilogy about DEA agent Art Keller's decades-long war with the Mexican drug kingpin. Based on the US government's very real drug on wars and six years of research by Winslow, The Power of the Dog and its 2015 sequel, The Cartel, replicate the pace and feel of an explosive documentary, according to NPR. The trilogy's much-anticipated conclusion, The Border, debuted in February. It finds protagonist Keller pulled from retirement to combat a domestic heroin epidemic and new enemies where he least expected to find them, in his own government. Hi, how are you all? I feel silly standing behind a podium, but I, I, might, I might wander, I might sing. Every time I have one of these microphones, I feel like I should do Stormy Weather or, you know, my funny Valentine, one of my personal faves. Uh, I am going to talk about the book, I promise I will. Not yet, though. Um, I've been talking about the book for a month. Started to hate the book. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to start somewhere else, and then we'll ease our way into it. And then uh, I'm here for you, so you need to tell me what it is you'd like me to do tonight. But here's my idea. But if that doesn't meet your idea, object, and we'll, you know, we'll change it, right? Uh, what I thought I'd do is I'd talk to you for a little bit and tell you a couple of stories and, and talk about the book a little bit. And, but I think really question and answers is kind of more fun, and we'll have a conversation. And, and then if you want me to sign anything, you know, within reason, I will do that. <laughs> so does that sound like a, a way to spend our time together? Cool. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming. Um, I'm very aware that without, uh, without readers and booksellers, I don't have this job that I love. And so uh, it's great to see you, and, and I hope you know how appreciative I am. Uh, it hasn't always been this way. 
Uh, earlier in my career, I did a, a book signing at a bookstore in Laguna Beach, California, uh, with a book set in Laguna Beach, California. <laughs> uh, I was scheduled to be there for two hours. Nobody came. <laughs> Thank you for the sympathy, ma'am. That's, that's pretty much what I was going for. Uh, it, it, got, it gets worse, though. Now, you're, you're all wondering, how does it get worse than zero? Well, let, let me tell you. Uh, after the first hour, the bookstore owner left <laughs> and asked me to lock up, <laughs> which I did. I, Irish Catholic boy that I am, I obey, you know, and she said, you know, she left and, and I sat there for an hour by myself and then locked up. And, um, I don't know why I'm telling you this. It's because I'm really tired and I don't feel like talking about the book yet. Uh, another time in Laguna Beach, California. Writers can tell you bad book signing stories forever, by the way. Just, you, know, you should ask them in these sessions because they're really pretty funny. Um, another time in Laguna Beach. I seem to have bad luck in, in Laguna Beach, California. It's sad because I lived there and set a number of books there. I did a film there. Uh, but I, uh, it was another two-hour uh, bookstore thing where the bookseller, no offense booksellers, but this one did not know what they were doing at all. And, and when they don't know what they're doing, they put you in the front of a store sitting behind a table with your books and a name tag, like the zoo. <laughs> and people do. They come up and they look at the name tag. <laughs> and they look at you. And look at the, and then, then they decide if they're interested or not. You know, look at the name tag, and then look at you. Do I want to see the baboon? No, I'm more interested in the Garanook. Uh, it goes on and on like that. Um, and, and and this particular day, it went on and on like that. The other thing that people do in bookstores when an author's sitting in the front is they don't make eye contact. That's the other choice because they're afraid you're going to try to sell them a book. You know, I'm not aggressive that way, and, but, but people, and so it's like, do not make eye contact with the psychotic on the subway. You know, just people just walk past you, you know, like that. So this one day, I've been sitting there for an hour and 45 minutes again by myself, and this very distinguished elderly lady came up, and she did the thing. She looked at the name tag, she looked at books, she looked at me. She looked at the name tag, she looked at the book, she looked at me. And then she said, are you Don Winslow? <laughs> Yes, I am. She said, may I ask you a question? I said, please, please. I said, do you know where the ladies' room is? <laughs> I did, yeah. A, uh, it was also a time earlier in my career, and I'll make this short, uh, where uh, I, I was often mistaken for another Don Winslow. Uh, I was, you know, it's like seven books into my published career before I could quit my day jobs, one of which was a private investigator, and I was down in San Antonio, Texas on a case, and what I do at night, you know, when I have nothing else to do and I'm out of town is I go to bookstores. My, my wife, I think, sort of unkindly refers to these as dweebs night out. <laughs> um, and so, because that's what I do, you know. And I'm walking through this bookstore, and I'm walking, and you know how you walk through bookstores, and don't tell me you don't, do not tell me you don't, with your head cocked. <laughs> Everybody recognizes it, because you're all book people, you wouldn't be here. And uh, you're looking at the spines of books, right? And I'm looking at the spines of books, and I come to a book called Ironwood 4 by Don Winslow. 
but I'm Don Winslow, and I don't remember having written Ironwood 1, 2, or 3. Little concerned, the 80s being what they were. Uh, and so I, uh, I picked the book up off the, the shelf, and uh, I open it up because I'm concerned about what book I forgot that I wrote. And it's a, it's a porn book. <laughs> Gentleman back here read it. <laughs> Sir, if you think I'm signing this book tonight. Uh, and it's the continuing story of a private school for girls. And it's an S&M uh, kind of book. It's sort of Aeneas Neen meets Patrick O'Brien. Nothing is accomplished without ropes and whips. It is just horrible. And I was very embarrassed. And I thought, I, you know, I need to show this to my, my editor, the famous Sonny Mehta at Knopf. I need to show it to my agent. But I don't want to go up to the counter and buy it. <laughs> so I'm embarrassed. Then I think better of this, because I think the only thing that's more humiliating than, than you know, buying a, a sleazy porn book is getting caught shoplifting. <laughs> a sleazy porn book. So with the sort of feral cunning that writers have, I came up with a plan. I bought a bunch of other books. I bought an Updike novel to look literary, you know. I bought an African history book. Uh, it's what I majored in in college, which is what made me a hardcore unemployable. <laughs> I bought a New Testament. <laughs> and I slip Ironwood 4, the continuing story of a private school for girls, in the middle of this pile of books, I go up to the counter, and there are three tellers. One is sort of a sleazy, middle-aged looking guy like me. That's who I wanted. You know, he looked like he might have read this book, and one, two, and three. And uh, there was a very stern, no offense again, sort of stereotypical middle-aged librarianish looking woman with iron gray hair pulled into a tight bun. I did not want her. And then the woman I really did not want is the 16-year-old Texas girl with big blue eyes, blonde hair, and a crucifix. <laughs> Karma being what it is, that's who I got. And we're all embarrassed. And, I, and she, you know, she does the Updike novel. She didn't know who that was. It didn't matter. And then the African history book, the New Testament, and then bam-o, you know, Ironwood 4. And she's looking at me with tears in her eyes. All I want to do, all I want to do is get out of there. Just please let me get through this transaction. So I laid down my American Express card. I'll wait for you. Don Winslow, Don Winslow. Now is she not only facing a man <laughs> who's buying a sleazy porn book, she is facing a man who wrote. <laughs> tough night, San Antonio. Uh, the, 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 this guy is not his name. Um, his name is Lewis something. He's um, 86 years old, lives in Philadelphia. And this is why I'm going to hell if the nuns were right. Um, every once in a while, early in the morning, 
I will go on the internet and, and go on the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper page, the obituary section. <laughs> you know, hopefully, which is, which is wrong, I know. I know it's wrong, sir. I, I do. I am going to talk about the book, but not yet. If, um, with your permission, I'd like to talk a little bit about libraries. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and why they're so important in, to me individually, but also to, I think, us as a society. Uh, I grew up in a little, like, born in New York City, uh, which explains a lot. I was born in New York City on Halloween, <laughs> Staten Island, which explains everything, if you know Staten Island. And, uh, but I grew up in Rhode Island, a little, little fishing village called Matunic. And uh, it's pretty much what you were expected to do if you grew up in Matunic. You were expected to fish. You know, there wasn't a lot around there, but there was a library. My mother was a librarian. My dad was a sailor. I've, I've said it before that, that my, my father was a sailor who loved books, and my mom uh, was a librarian who loved a sailor. And there were always books around our house and always stories being told. My old man was, I think, 18 when he was with the Marines on Guadalcanal. Now, God knows what he experienced or saw. He didn't share those stories with us. But um, he had three ambitions in life, he said, after he got out of World War II. One was to float around on the water, which he did, career Navy guy. Second was to go to every zoo in Europe. I don't know. <laughs> A little eccentric, my father. Uh, and the third was to read books. So it worked out. And uh, this little library, uh, tiny, I, I mean smaller than this room, built in the 1800s, in this little New England town, which is, you know, enveloped in fog except for the eight weeks of summer. But, you know, uh, as a kid, uh, 8, 10, 12 years old, 14 years old, I could go into that library and go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, living in a place that had, let's face it, low expectations of us. I could go anywhere in the world, and I did. And my parents, God bless them both, um, had a very definite philosophy about this. Their philosophy for my sister and me was that we could read anything we wanted at any age. No censorship at all. And also, we never had to go to sleep if we were reading a book. As long as I was in bed reading a book, there was no lights out time. You just pass out reading the book. <laughs> so, living in this tiny town, uh, again, I could go into that, that small place Go anywhere I wanted. I want to go to England, I went to England. I want to go to Africa, I went to Africa. Out west, out west. And then I realized not only could I go anywhere in the world, not only could I travel through space, I could travel through time. I could, do I want to be in England in the 12th century? Do I want to be out west in the 1860s? Do I, anywhere I wanted to go, any time in human history, I could go there. You know, when I was not raised with money, uh, buying a book was a big deal. But everything was available to me because of that library. And I don't think it's a coincidence 
that um, my sister is two years older than me. Our two kids in our family, we both grew up to become professional novelists. My sister wrote, I think, 46 published uh, romance novels. I've written a few books. Uh, I don't think it was a coincidence, you know. And then I, the other day I got thinking about libraries in a kind of a bigger sense than just me. You know, I, I think um, it's not a coincidence that democracies rose in the West around the same time that the free lending library concept rose. When you really think about it, what a revolutionary concept a library is. It says something profoundly democratic and egalitarian that had not been said before. And that is that anybody and everybody no matter of their social standing, their economic standing, could have access to all the world's knowledge for free. What a revolutionary concept. Because those things used to be closed off. That information, that knowledge, those opinions, that history, that travel through time and through space used to be closely held by the upper classes and the aristocracy. But then we come into this era of history where all of that is open to anybody. You want to know the news? And you don't have a dime for a newspaper? You can go in the library and read what's happening. Do you want to hear a variety of opinions? Go in the library and read them. Do you want to become uh, conversant with Shakespeare? There it is. And I, I think that, that libraries have been and are such an important part of our democracy. Now, we have the internet. We have, yeah, people can go on and they can get that and they can do that kind of thing. And now libraries are adapting to a slightly different role uh, to become gathering places like this session tonight. You know, I have this theory that, that the more technology that we invent to communicate, the less we actually do it. Birds used to tweet, now I do. <laughs> Sessions like this, where people gather in the same space, the same time as human beings and look at each other and talk, are becoming increasingly rare. And libraries now are doing more of this sort of thing, becoming gathering places, and yet you can go anywhere in this amazing library. I've never seen a library with its own waterfall, by the way. <laughs> so, so, you know, its own like water park. I'm, I'm gonna do some rides later, it's nice. Uh, and get any and all of the world's collected knowledge. What a profoundly democratic thing that is. Uh, okay, I will talk about the book for a minute, and then I'm going to open it up to questions and answers. And, and um, I'm happy to answer anything, and if I don't want to, I won't. So don't, don't be embarrassed about asking a question. Uh, if you're here to protest me tonight, this would be the perfect time to walk out <laughs> and demand your money back. This has become sort of a thing, so if that's your purpose for being here tonight, I will pause for a moment so you can get the maximum amount of attention. No takers, wow. Not in Texas anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, the book. The book is, because I, you know, look, the publisher's not here tonight. I can do anything I want, right? <laughs> it's a silly thing to leave an author alone with any kind of responsibility, you know, because we're children, basically. We spend all day making stuff up. What a job, I, you know, really, you know? Um, the book is called The Border, uh, if I remember correctly, and it's the third in a trilogy. Uh, that also makes sense. It's the concluding volume of the trilogy, although I've sworn after the two other books I was done with this topic. But I realized, and I feel kind of embarrassed about this, I feel stupid about this. I wrote a book called The Cartel, which was alluded to earlier, which was the second book in this trilogy. And, and after that book, I thought that I was done, D-O-N-E, with this project. Uh, I started all of this in 1998, uh, September 20th, 1998, uh, following the massacre, there's no other word for it, of uh, 19 uh, innocent men, women, and children in a little town in Mexico we used to go to on cheap weekends as one does in San Diego. And uh, I could not get my head at that time wrapped around how that could happen, how any phenomenon could get to the point where people were willing to do that. Now, mind you, 10 years later, when I was writing and researching the cartel, uh, body count of 19 was a low. Uh, wouldn't have made the papers. But it, in 1998, that was shocking to me, and I couldn't figure it out. And at that point in time, I had no interest in or knowledge of drug trafficking. It wasn't my topic. Uh, I lived along the border and had for years. Uh, so that started this odyssey, and it started this character named Art Keller, who starts as an idealistic young DEA agent in Mexico, uh, moves on in the cartel to a less young and certainly less idealistic DEA agent. And I thought after that I, I was finished. I thought the real-life events were finished. The Sinaloa cartel had basically won the war in Mexico, and uh, there was a, a period of relative peace and stability. I thought that I was done. As, a, as an artist, if you will, as a writer, because I had resolved Keller's major conflict, which was with this uh, drug lord, Don Barrera, that also moves through the two books. Uh, and I was wrong. Uh, tragically, in some ways, the, the heroin epidemic, the opioid crisis, whatever we want to call it, exploded in the United States. Uh, immigration became an issue again. Uh, we went through you might have noticed a rather drastic political change. And uh, Mexico experienced its two most violent years since they started keeping track. Uh, and also, I realized this is the embarrassing part. Well, two, two embarrassing things. One was that uh, while I had resolved Keller's external conflict, never resolved his internal conflict, which meant in some ways that I had not resolved my internal conflict as a writer of, about these issues. And also I realized, belatedly, that while I've been saying in public for years that the, the so-called Mexican drug problem is not, in fact, the Mexican drug problem, but the American drug problem, it's Mexico that pays for it in blood, that I'd set 70% probably of the scenes of the first two books in Mexico or Central America. And that therefore to be true to my beliefs, 
I needed to bring both Art Keller and the drug war and in some ways myself home. And so most of this book that we're here for tonight, there are scenes in Mexico, but most of it takes place here in the United States. And, and it's about us. It's about us as a people and, and where we're at uh, with all of these issues. So that's why I ended up breaking the promise that I made to myself, to my wife, to my family, to a lot of people that I, I was done with this subject. Uh, you know, uh, uh, finishing this book, The Border, and finishing this trilogy, and this time I mean it, uh, I realize I've spent a third of my life uh, on this beat, on this story. Uh, and uh, other than my wife and my, my now adult son, who was, however, a child when I started this, uh, I've spent more time with Art Keller than any other real human being in my life. So this has been, you know, a, a long kind of campaign. Uh, for the most part, I'm glad I did it. Uh, some parts of me regret that I did it. Uh, but I hope that, that the book is a, a suitable ending to this trilogy um, and, and that finally brings it home and, and resolves for Keller and, and for me some of these issues. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Don Winslow and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring about some of the people protesting Don Winslow and his work. Um, I've been rather active on, on Twitter, uh, and I've taken out uh, full-page ads in the Washington Post and the New York Times at various points over the past few years, advocating several issues, one, an end to the war on drugs, and two, certainly an end to the era of mass incarceration. What the protesters, though, right now have a beef with me about is, uh, is some things I've said about, about President Trump. Uh, and I've been pretty vocal about that, and I've been vocal that the wall, the proposed wall, won't do a thing to stop the flow of drugs in the United States for very simple and obvious reasons that everybody knows. So what's been happening is, is they go on various review sites and give the book one star uh, and then brag about it on Twitter. And it's, it's fine, man. I, you know, or they call up events like this and say we're bringing 200 protesters to picket when they don't show up, uh, which is a little disappointing. <laughs> if you've ever sat in Laguna Beach by yourself. <laughs> nice to have 200 people, even, even if they hate you, you like the attention. Um, and, uh, or they get up in the middle and they walk out and they go to the booksellers with the book and demand their money back. So it's, it's become kind of a moment. This audience member asks about Winslow's books being adapted into films. You know, I, I sold the, or optioned the movie rights uh, to the cartel several years ago. <laughs> and then I wrote the third book and screwed it all up because people looked at the third book and said, oh, this is, now we have a different story. 
and so what's happening now is that FX Network has picked it up as a television series with the idea that it runs five to seven seasons. Uh, and we're sort of in the process of, of talking with showrunners now and doing all that. I, I like FX a lot. Johnny Landgraf, who runs FX, is an old friend. And I uh, think the world of him. Uh, so I'm enthused about it. This question is what it's like to write about real subject matter as fiction. One of the problems with writing about the cartels and all that is it's so surreal that sometimes you don't believe it's real. Do you know what I mean? It, it can be difficult to write about because it, it gets into almost the Rococo. Do you know what I mean? It, uh, there are scenes that I know occurred that I did not put in the books because either I thought they were too horrific and if you've read the books, you realize that's quite a statement. Or that people simply would not believe them, that I know to have happened. Um, so, no, I never envisioned this. And again, you know, I, I hit the ejector button after the first book, Power of the Dog. Said, I'm never, I can't spend any more time in this world, you know. Um, sat it out for three or four years and then frankly felt guilty about sitting on the sidelines when I, I knew, this sounds egotistical, but let it stand. I knew I could explain to a reading public what had happened through a novel, but I was sitting it out, you know. Uh, and then I realized I just I couldn't do that anymore and had to jump back into it. And then after Cartel said the same thing, done, you know, can't, can't do it. Um, and here we are. But no, I never imagined it, never. This audience member asks about Winslow's research process for his novels. Uh, I have a very specific way I go about researching whatever it is, including this, this trilogy. I, I always start with history, because um, I'm trained as a historian. That's my education and, and, and my bent. But I also believe in chronology. You know, I believe in A causes B causes C causes D. So there were things that, that were happening in the 1990s, for instance, that were inexplicable to me, but I, that I found the answers were in the 1800s or even in some cases in, in pre-Columbian Latin America. After I'm done with history, I go to nonfiction and journalism. After that becomes redundant, I go to documents, uh, court records, um, police reports, CIA, DEA reports. Uh, when I'm Done with that, I feel I have a base knowledge that I'm not going to go waste people's time. So now I go out and I talk to witnesses, basically. So that was very difficult in the beginning. So then it was a matter of going out and, and talking with, frankly, drug traffickers. Back in the power of the dog days, gangbangers, cops, DEA people. Spent a lot of time in prisons talking to people. Obviously, a lot of time in Mexico. Uh, and by that time, you, you kind of already know the facts. You know what I mean? What you're really looking for is nuance, rhythms, dialogue. Uh, I, I feel that, that you know, journalists can give facts, but novelists can tell truth in some ways because we have the creative freedom to invent feelings and inner dialogue. And that's what I'm really looking for when I'm talking to people you know, what they think about what they do, how they feel about what they do. Because I, the way I interpret my job is to bring the reader into a world that he or she otherwise couldn't enter. And the technique I use for that is to, is to try to get 
inside the character's points of view. So, I mean, the, the physical research materials, you know, were stacked up, you know, eight feet high, and kind of ate the house for a while. But as I got further along in this process, I didn't need that as much documentary research because I had the connections. I never went undercover because that would be dishonest. Uh, I, you know, I used to work undercover when I was a PI. I know that world pretty well um, and write about it in the border with a cop who does it. No, ma'am, I was very honest about saying, here's what I'm doing. If, and I use, a, I use a line that a lot of journalists use. You know, I say, look, uh, I'm here to listen. I'm going to write the story anyway. I want to get it right. If you don't talk to me, don't come back to me later and complain about it, because here I am. Uh, and that technique usually works, you know. People like to tell their stories, I'm telling you. They do. They want to be understood. And I have never met a bad guy who said I'm a bad guy. And I've sat down at tables with murderers, child molesters, mass killers, hitmen, you name it. Uh, they all have a point of view. We might find it repulsive, but they always have one. Did I ever feel my life was in danger? Not really. You know, I, I never want to, to compare myself in any way with the uh, Mexican journalists, almost 200 of whom now have been murdered telling these stories. That's not me. I'm not that courageous. I'm not that hero. I'm, you know, sitting pretty safely on the American side of the border. I'm a fiction writer. They know I write fiction. I disguise, you know, merge characters and names for the most part. Uh, and let's face it, these guys aren't big readers. <laughs> you know? Now, I, yeah, do I get threats? Sure. Uh, I think they're mostly cranks and nutters and, you know, wannabes. Um, it's axiomatic that you don't worry so much about the people who threaten you. Yeah. It's the people who don't. Yeah. And there's kind of nothing you can do about that anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we've had to take precautions that we never would have taken. I rarely say where I live anymore. Photographers come. We don't allow them to photograph the house or we tried not to have them print the name of the town that, that I live in. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I'm definitely more aware of my surroundings than I used to be. I'm, believe me, aware who's in the room. Uh, if, if I see somebody more than once in a day that I don't know, I, I want to know why. But I'll also be honest with you, I, I can take care of myself. <laughs> Our next question comes from an audience member asking how Winslow goes about writing such rich, dimensional characters. It's my job not to have them be one-dimensional stereotypes, right? That's what I'm supposed to be doing for a living, you know? Uh, it'd be pretty sad if I, if I made cartoons. And, and I, I think that what I have to tell myself is, look, when I'm writing a character, I'm, I'm writing from the inside. I just learned there's a literary phrase from it. Never having had a writing class, I didn't know this until an interviewer brought it up the other day. It's called the false third person. Who knew? But um, uh, so I write in the false third person. 
third-person voice, but from the point of view of the character. When I'm doing that, I'm not trying to be objective. So I'm trying to be subjective. If, if I start making value judgments about my characters, I end up with a silhouette, right? A one-dimensional figure in black on a field of my white moral purity, which doesn't, of course, in fact, exist. So um, I, I want to know, how does this character feel? What does this character think? What is this character's point of view? And I stay very much inside that. And I hope that that gives me a fully fleshed, albeit realistic character. Now, I might despise some of these people, and I do, you know. Uh, but I can't despise them while I'm writing them. That's not my job. All the characters in the books are sort of mixes, but because I'm writing almost sort of fiction, historical fiction, yeah, that's why I was kind of and I'm trying to explain the real world and what happened, the character of, of M1 is based on a guy whose nickname was M1, Miguel Angel Gallardo, who was the original creator of the Mexican Federacion, was the second highest cop in Sinaloa, and the guy who figured out the Colombian cocaine connection. So Gallardo gathered all these old gomeros, the growers of opium in Sinaloa area, in a Sierra, you know, and, and basically gathered them in a restaurant in, in Guadalajara in a very famous meeting and said, look, you don't want to own land because it's always going to be vulnerable. What you want to do is just be the delivery system. Well, in fact, he was called El Padrino, the Godfather, which is kind of amusing because they took that name from the film. Well, by family, by by... All of that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I saw the Godfather with the son of a mafia don uh, growing up where I did. And so none of us, and, you know, we were kids, had ever heard the the word Godfather used as the boss of a crime family until after the movie came out. And then they liked what they saw. Who wouldn't? Marlon Brando, you know, Al Pacino being very noble and all that stuff. Uh, so when, the, when Gallardo formed the Federation, Federation, uh, he took the name Godfather because he liked the Marlon Brando character. And so that became a thing in Mexico as well. This audience member asks if Winslow outlines his books before sitting down to write. You know, I, I don't outline or I don't create those boards because um, I have to remember, because I have a tendency to be a historian, and I have to fight what I call the smartest boy in the class syndrome, by which I mean just because you know the answer doesn't mean you have to give it. I don't have to be doing this in my books all the time. I know, I know, I know, I do know. But I have to remind myself, you're writing a novel. You can move things around. You can merge characters. Your responsibility is to the reader to make it a good, solid read. So if I start doing all those charts and graphs and stuff, I know myself. I'm going to obey them. So, but I do have to remind myself. Sometimes I say, you know, you don't have to write every murder that occurred in Juarez. Right. Or sometimes my editor says that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, I have to remind myself, you are writing fiction, albeit close to the bone, close to reality, and you know, you have that flexibility. 
So sometimes I literally have to sit back. And I, I can't tell you how badly I jacked up the first like 150 pages of the border on its first like eight to 10 drafts. And I finished the book and I thought, oh yeah, we're good, you know. Uh, and then I came back to it and went, wow, that really sucks. I mean, that first 150 pages, what are you writing, a master's thesis? <laughs> you know, it, you, you gotta, it has to be a novel. And, and I had structural problems and oddly enough, I solve them by going to Shakespeare's Henry VI. What, what happens after the death of a king, right? So, uh, you know, I made my living for a long time directing Shakespeare. So I thought, what great, you know, literary work can I look at that happens after the downfall of somebody? So I went to Henry VI and the answer was bam, right there. Shakespeare telling me, you can get all the competing parties in one place at the same time. Went cool. That's a funeral. Bam, and and so the book sort of restructured. Another question for Don Winslow is if he ever has regrets after writing any of his books. I I worry sometimes uh, that that because the books are very violent, that I've crossed the line into exploitation. That's always a very fine, narrow border to walk, and, and so I have some regrets, I think, that maybe I crossed the line at times, you know, that just didn't judge it well enough. You have to make a decision when you're writing about a topic like this. You're either gonna, on the, on the one extreme, because it's a spectrum, sanitize the violence, which is irresponsible in one way, because then people don't get the seriousness of it and they don't get the impact of it. And then you worry on the other end of that spectrum that you've crossed this line where you're exploiting real life victims. You know, there were times where I would spend weeks doing nothing but looking at atrocity videos and autopsy photos. And I made it my goal to try to at least identify the people in those not that I'd use the names in the book, but so that they were people to me as opposed to literary topics. So that was one regret. Another regret was a regret that was quite similar when I was an investigator, you know, is that you can't bring, or you certainly don't want to, bring your work home. You know, if, if you've been doing that all day and then you come back and your, your wife or your kid asks you, oh, how was your day, what'd you do? I'm not, you know, not bringing that to the table, you know. Uh, I mean, my wife was kind of used to it. I mean, before I was making my living as a writer, there were days where I'd go to a private airport, get on a private plane, and they wouldn't tell us where we were going until we were in the air, because you're talking to some sensitive witness or something. Or you're dealing, I, I drew two years of child sexual abuse cases, you know. You, you're not going to come home. <laughs> and talk about your day. And I, I think that that can, it's not damaging to a marriage, you know, we're just fine, but, but it's not good for it either, you know. Uh, and so having spent 20 years on that topic, I, I hope it was worth it. You know, I hope it was worth it to the reader, uh, not asking for applause or anything, you know. But um, 
So, yeah, I think about those things. This question is what Winslow is working on next. I know, but I'm not telling you, sir. <laughs> uh, I've done it. I've finished it, I think. Uh, I, you know, I set it down, and I've been on tour now for about a month, and I've got a couple of weeks left, and then I'll go back and look at it and decide if it's any good or not. I think this has been good sort of hiatus to, in, in the same way that I went back and looked at the border and realized that the first 150 pages were awful. Uh, I want to go back to this and see. The only th I'll define it by negation. It's, it's not a drug novel. Uh, I don't think there are any drugs in any part of it. Um, it's, but it's definitely crime. And, and this is going to sound weird. Uh, lighter than the border which is, I understand, not a high bar to jump. This next question is what Don Winslow likes to read in his free time. It's been a while. Uh, sadly, well, not sadly, but just the fact is that most of my reading is research reading, probably 90 to 95%. But for fun lately, uh, Richard Russo, every time I read Richard Russo, I just want to quit. I do. I read Richard Russo novel. I read what? That old Cape Magic the other day on an airplane. I went, why am I bothering doing it? Why am I going through, you know, in front of audiences of people pretending to be a writer when Richard Russo exists? Uh, Jim Harrison, uh, the late, sadly, the late Jim Harrison. Uh, the other day I had a Sunday afternoon off at home and it was raining. And I sat in my study and picked up the collected works of Shakespeare, opened a page at random, and just read. And that was great. So I'm, I'm pretty eclectic in my reading, my leisure reading. But unfortunately, I don't have enough time that I'd like to do it. Our next question comes from an audience member wondering if Winslow had any major setbacks during his storied career. Look, there were a lot of them. You know, uh, I was in my, what, late 30s before my first book was published. Uh, I was um, cobbling together a living, you know. I was directing Shakespeare for summer programs at Oxford. I was a safari guide in Kenya and later in China, chasing leopards around, people to photograph them, not shoot them. Uh, and I was working as a PI. You know, just trying to pay the bills. You had a young family and all of that. And I'm in Africa uh, with malaria and amoebic dysentery. And it's five in the morning and I'm sitting in a, this sounds a very dramatic story, I swear to God it's true. Uh, five in the morning, you know, before dawn, sitting around a fire, waiting for the clients to get up and shaking, you know. And uh, a friend of mine at Oxford, he's a, he's a professor of literature at Columbia now, had said to me several weeks previously, had said, uh, you know, you always talk about writing a book, but you don't do it. When are you going to do it? And simultaneously to that, I'd heard Joseph Wambau give a radio interview in which he said when he was an L.A. cop, you know, Wambau was an L.A. homicide sergeant uh, for many years that when he wanted to be a writer, he decided he was going to write 10 pages a day no matter what. So I'm sitting out with dysentery, <laughs> a malaria relapse, um, 
and I have no money. I'm living from safari to safari, from case to case. And uh, I thought, you better do it, you know. And I said, I can't write, I said to myself, I can't write 10 pages a day, but I can write five. And so I, that's what I did. No matter where I was or what I was doing, I wrote five pages a day. Three years later, I had a book. Well, I thought I had a book. <laughs> the first 15 publishers, including the publisher I'm with now, turned it down. But while everyone was turning it down, I was writing my second book. And it was the second in a series with a character called Neil Carey. And I had also read that um, of every 10,000 people who write down on their income tax return writer as their profession, one makes a living at it. Now, any sane person at that point would quit. I said, and this is going to sound horrible, but I, I wouldn't lie to you. You've been nice enough to come out and see me. I said, I am sincerely sorry for the other 9,999, but in this life, that's my slot, you know? So there have been lots of moments. I, listen, my career's been declared dead, you know. Talk about autopsy photos. I could, <laughs> I could show you book covers, you know, <laughs> me laying on a slab, you know. Uh, I've been told my career was over so many times. I've been told so many times, you're not a best-selling writer. You're not an airport author. I've been told so many times what I'm not. You know, and sure, there have been bad moments. I mean, if Janet Maslin hadn't given Savages a rave review in the New York Times, my career would have been over. You know, I remember that moment very distinctly. So, yeah, you, you go through those moments. But one thing I'd like to say about that is that everybody goes through those moments, not just writers. We romanticize it. We think we're special <laughs> because we get rejected. <laughs> Be right with you. <laughs> no, I don't mean to make fun of it, but you know what I mean? I get a little tired sometimes of my brothers and sister writers feeling like we're special because we didn't get a job we wanted. Everybody, that happens to everybody. Everybody gets rejected. Everybody goes through tough times. You know, that's, that's just, that's life, man. You know, and so I, I don't, I never saved rejection slips. I know some writers who would save them, you know, plant them like noxious weeds in their garden. And I just threw them away and said, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. And guess what? They were wrong and I was right. This audience member asked Don Winslow why he thinks Americans have such an appetite for illegal drugs. Uh, look, we, we Americans are 5% of the world's population. We use 80% of the world's opioids. Now, opioids are always a response to pain. Thank God, thank God, by the way. Thank God we have them. They're great, wonderful things, really. Uh, but we're not asking ourselves the question, what's the pain? What hurts? You know, if you go to a doctor, the first thing that... He or she asks you is, what hurts? Where does it hurt? We're not asking that question. I have theories about it. You know, I've spent a lot of time, particularly on the last two books with, with heroin addicts. You know, sadly, several of whom didn't make it. You know, uh, I think we're a lonely society. 
again, I, I sort of referred to this earlier. I, I, I don't think we gather enough. I think we're an acquisitive society. And again, that's not all bad. We've created immense wealth and comfort and wonderful things. Uh, but it's not without its price. We're so damn busy working all the time. I think that people who don't feel that they've achieved enough economically maybe feel it in this country more than they do in some other societies and either are realistically or certainly feel that they've been left behind. That's my theory, but look, I'm a dumb crime novelist. I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a politician, but I have been on this beat for 20 years. You know, I've been to the treatment centers, I've been on the corners, I've, you know, unfortunately been to the funerals. Uh, I've never done a public event, and tonight probably won't be any different. When someone has not come up to me, I know I'm dealing in double negatives here, uh, who has either lost somebody in the Mexican drug wars or lost somebody to drug addiction. Not one in 20 years. So that's my theory, but I don't know. I wish I had the answers, but, but the problem is we're not asking the question. We're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, whether it's the wall or the kingpin strategy or whatever. I, I, I can promise you this, I'll tell you this. Um, we will never, ever, ever solve this problem on the supply end. We can only on the demand end. As long as we want the stuff, people will sell it and it'll get here. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Winslow incorporates real-life elites into fictional characters for his books. Listen, I, I'm not going to go into an anti-capitalist screed here. Do you know what I mean? And uh, uh, Listen, I, I, I write about our times. And because you know, I write about a character like Art Keller, who is the head of the DEA in this book, it would be silly of me to pretend that there's some other president and some other administration than there is. It's not Martin Van Buren, it's not FDR. I, you know, I fictionalize it, but I write, again, close to the bone. I think that the elites have something to answer for, but I don't think this is a new thing. Now, we send and I'll make this short because I can get I get crazy about this stuff. People flee, and then you'll have people crushed at the door. And it's not good. We send we Americans send. Nobody knows an exact figure because Mexican cartel leaders don't publish their income tax returns. We send somewhere between 40 to 65 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars in cash, in dirty money down to Mexico a year. And then we accuse them of exporting criminality in the United States, by the way. I'm not gonna get into that unless you ask me. <laughs> that money has to go somewhere. The, the Mexican economy cannot physically absorb $65 billion in cash and laundry. It's not big enough. So where does it go? Here in Europe. How? 
Well, it literally comes back in terms of cash. It's rather inefficient when you think about it. It goes down to Mexico in cash. It gets what we call smurfed, broken up into smaller units, and comes right back up here. Um, and it goes into banks, many of them in border cities. It goes into real estate. And it's not just me saying this. I mean, several huge international banks have already pled guilty to laundering drug money and paid tens of millions of dollars, far too little, in fines for doing this. So that money finds its way back to the elite. It just does. And that's, that's just the fact. I mean, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So I've said it before, we're, we're in, a, in a way we're all the cartel. That, that drug, you know, after 2008, where did the recovery start? Well, it's a rhetorical question, I'm gonna answer it. It started in real estate, and it started in San Diego, Phoenix, Houston, along the border. Who had money to lend in 2009 and 2010? Not the banks. If you remember, they weren't lending money. Who had the cash? The cartels had the cash. And, and, and that drug money makes up somewhere between 7 to 12% of the economy of Mexico. The Mexican economy were to crash, the American economy would follow pretty quickly. So we can talk about elites. I mean, I, I laughed out loud at this college admission scandal. This is news? Really? Some of the details were news, but haven't we known this all along, that the game is fixed? And it's not fixed for me. Thank you so much for coming out tonight to see me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That wraps up our Washington County Library R.H. Stafford event with Don Winslow. Make sure to catch our next club book with Leif Enger at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. Chart-topping novelist Leif Enger burst onto the scene in 2001 with Peace Like a River, one of this century's few fiction debuts to sell a million copies. His newest, Virgil Wander, returns to the Arcadian northern Minnesota settings that made Enger a literary superstar. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.